I'm from Jamaica. I live for the American dream. That's what I came here for. That's what I work for every single day. And by doing so, it doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't mean that it's easy in no way, shape or form, but I do believe and I do hope and have faith that if I put in the work, then I will reap some reward. And the more I work is the less I'm seeing those rewards. The coronavirus is making everything obvious. Before this, I thought I had my life together. Again, I thought I was doing good. I thought I was on track. What are we, let's say two months in, and I'm like, okay, I really need to rethink everything that I previously thought before. And this is two months. Welcome to Exit 43, where we take a deep dive into things you probably didn't know about. I'm your host, Jordan Fenster, and for the next few episodes, we're going to dive into something everyone knows about, the subject of inequity, and how the COVID-19 health crisis has both cemented and exposed inequities that have been persistent for generations. I should warn any sensitive listeners that there may be one or two instances of foul language. Let's set up the premise a bit first. For that, we turn to Gary Winfield, a Connecticut state senator from New Haven. When you see these inequities, be it in education, be it that the PPP lifted up some communities and left others to drown, what you see is the further concretization of social inequity itself. Many people are saying, well, it, we are seeing things that are telling us about uh, the way we operate, and that's a good thing because going forward, we can do whatever it is we're supposed to be doing. And I say to those people, I don't believe that. Uh, I watched what happened when we watched people drown in this country when you had Hurricane Katrina. And it wasn't that after Hurricane Katrina, we came in and everything became equitable and we worked towards equity. Uh, what you saw was those, those inequities were further concretized. And I think you're, you're going to see that happen here. If we're talking about inequities during the current health crisis, I think it's important to note that the coronavirus has disproportionately affected communities of color. Black people are catching the disease and getting sicker from it at a higher rate than people of other racial and ethnic backgrounds. There's a a bargaining, a determining what, what, how many people can die that will happen when we start to open up. The people who are making a decision about that aren't in these communities. But Winfield said, as you heard, that the coronavirus and the government's response to it is not just about health care. Take, for example, the Paycheck Protection Program, which Winfield refers to as the PPP. What you saw in the first round where you had the yield going to uh, those who already have relationships, which aren't the people we're talking about, what you do is you begin to keep them afloat or keep them from drowning is probably more accurate, while others continue to drown. And those who drown are those who are already either at the bottom or start in the process of drowning. And so that's how we begin to concretize this. The people who are still working are those in our service industries, those who are uh, in our nursing homes. When you look at who those people are, what you recognize is that those are the people who are in jeopardy, who walk back into their own homes because they don't, they, they can work, right? So they don't get to stay home and they, they have the ability to work, although work is dangerous, which is why they get a couple of extra dollars, which doesn't account for this. But they bring this back to their communities. So the communities are now subject to having COVID spread around, right? And we talk about all of these things. And when you think about what they really mean, 
they really mean that the inequities, whether they be in healthcare, education, or just our economic system, are further hardened. Winfield believes the coronavirus health crisis has solidified inequities that already existed. But Lorenzo Jones is a little more positive. Co-founder, co-ED of the Qatar Center for Health Equity and Justice based in Hartford, offices in Hartford and Brooklyn. He believes those inequities have been exposed and now can't be ignored. The, the thing that's different now is not that we were right. We always, we always knew we were right. Everybody knows what has to happen. The thing that COVID did was break the back of their resistance to it. And so COVID literally was almost like the way they used to train a puppy not to go to the bathroom in the house. They used to tell you, stick the puppy's nose in it, right? And then tell them no, tell her no. Well, well, that's what COVID did to the legislature. That's what COVID did to like politics. It just like stuck its nose in this thing that we've been saying, hey, who peed on the carpet, right? <laughs> right, for a hundred years. COVID just kind of grabbed the system and stuck its nose in, 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 in the pee and said no. Again, these issues have been around for a long, long time. If you go to any poor community or directly community, historically marginalized community, they're going to be like, yeah, it's always like this. Right? COVID is different, yes, but it's always fucked up, in other words. But however it comes down, we always get that into the stick. We're talking about big issues, but for Jones, it comes down to small kitchen table needs. Like an immediate solution probably has a lot more to do with their relationship with their landlord than it has to do with their relationship to the global pandemic. So if you think about this, not as marginalized or poor people, and you kind of group them differently as parents or grandparents raising grandchildren, right? But if you're a grandparent raising a grandchild, whose child is locked up because of the drug war or because of they're in prison, right? If that's you, right? Like the thing that you want right now, the most immediate thing you need right now is a cost of living adjustment. You see, you need transportation, right? You need a laptop. You need internet service in your house, right? Those, so like inside, if you were asked that question from a kitchen table in that community, I think the answers would be a lot more like tangible Right. If you answer it for people who want to do something to help those communities, then the answer is going to be a lot more grandiose and satisfying. It's a lot less satisfying to say, oh, we got 10 people in that service so the kids can do, they, they can do homeschooling. And it gets back again to the issues COVID-19 exposed. People thought that those kind of services and aid was already happening. COVID exposed that the community renewal team in Connecticut is doing a great job of moving paper and money around to people in an easy way. But in a global pandemic, all of a sudden, people's lights is getting cut off, right, at a time, and they ain't paid a light bill, they got a CPAP machine. And now all of a sudden, what happens, talk about kitchen table, all the mutual aid people who everybody called do-gooders and tree-huggers and kind of like, you know, like Harry Krishnas, right, right? All of the mutual aid folks are now like the center of resources for people in those communities. So the answer would be more money into like the legal law clinic, right? That's helping people defend themselves. More money into the bail funds that's bailing people out for Mother's Day and Father's Day. More money in the mutual aid. But those are the things that we've been talking about. <laughs> that ain't changed. The end result will be, according to Winfield, the decimation of some communities. What you will see is when the num- when it's over, the numbers are going to tell you a story that's going to have a racially disparate 
have had a racially disparate impact. Again, you you can say what, what our government has been saying, which is we're gonna work really hard and we're gonna make sure we do our best, but your best isn't good enough if my brother, sister, mother, cousin is dead. Your best isn't good enough if there was something more that you could have done. More on this in just a minute. Exit 43 is a production of Hearst Connecticut Media. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to our newspapers by visiting ctinsider.com. Find more episodes of Exit 43 on our website or wherever you go for podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Welcome back to Exit 43. I'm Jordan Fenster, and we're talking about inequity in the face of COVID-19. That voice you heard at the very beginning of the podcast was Rohan Trayvon Brown. I am currently an eligibility specialist um, with the Department of Social Services, stationed in the Stanford Regional Office. Brown works for the Connecticut Department of Social Services, but he's speaking here as a union leader. Brown is the decider. If you need supplemental food assistance or unemployment or other social services, he's the one on the other side of the plexiglass making that decision. I was going to say, in context, I'm the assistant supervisor to the service center. So we have different positions. Some people work in the back of the house. I work in the front of the house. So every day, Monday through Friday, I'm the one that opens that door, closes it, and there's always people coming and always people going out. Brown is an essential worker though he said he's never felt essential before this. Here you are. I've been at the agency now going on seven and a half, eight years. And I've always been told that, you know, we're non-essential. So let's start there. You know, you're non-essential. You're, for better choice of words, less than. And this is what it's always been. And after a while, I hate to say, but you become used to that. So I put myself in the less than category. Immediately at the beginning of this pandemic, I expected to be less than. Um, but overnight, within the blink of an eye, I'm now being told that, hey, you're essential. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? How does that change? What does that differ? I didn't have a say in the matter, of course. I asked Jones, too, what he thought about the idea of an essential worker. His answer was surprising. So this can take the best case scenario. The people who actually, who were, I had not considered prior to the global pandemic or to a situation like this, are literally the people who have who fight for track and like make sure that public policy is correct. The people who have shown who have not stopped working that nobody talks about, right? Are these people? And it's not all like organizers or lobbyists. I'm talking about neighborhood leaders, block club captains, building tenant association leadership, church leadership who have found have to find ways to track and make sure some bad legislation didn't get slipped in about fentanyl or some crazy stuff didn't come down the pike about reversing something else, right? And, and it's like, it's, it's the policy worker, the organizer, the mutual aid worker, the recovery worker, the harm reductionist. Nobody ever considered those people essential before. Brown would probably agree. He said the reason the virus is affecting people in minority communities is a lack of resources. I think the fundamental the fundamental reason or the fundamental cause as to why we're seeing this disparity um, currently happening is, and you touched on it, resources. African-American, Latino, Asian, these different minority groups, prior to this pandemic, they didn't have the resources that is afforded or should be afforded to every American living here. 
And then we have the other side of it where we see all these people in the food banks and food lines trying to survive. So if the virus doesn't get them, now they're going to starve of hunger um, and necessity items. And again, we live in the world's greatest country, but this is happening right in our backyard. From Brown's perspective, as someone who dishes out social service benefits to the people who need them most, it's harder now to ignore society's inequities. I mean, he's simply serving more clients now. His agency's protocols have changed. I think I, what, what I am saying is prior to the pandemic, it was easy to ignore these disparities. It's very easy. Because when we saw it, we saw it at, let's say, a smaller ratio. So let me use my day-to-day job. Yes, I saw different people of the community that we already exposed come in. I saw that they didn't qualify for benefits for one reason or another. Basically, the way the system was set up or something to their aspects. But now, take that one encounter that I would experience on a day-to-day basis and multiply it by 10. The interesting thing is, Brown said he and his colleagues have never felt very far from the clients they serve. A lot of times we like to say that we're on either side of the glass, you know, we're on the side of helping. And there was a thing that we always said that we're one paycheck away from being on the other side of the glass. And unfortunately, some of my coworkers have been those individuals. So, of course, you know, when you see your coworker that you've worked with for several years, now be that person that might need additional food supplement because you know, now they have their children at home, their children normally get school lunches, but they now have to provide all of that um, resources. It paints a bleak picture and it, it forces us to humble ourselves. Now, he's been able to work from home some days, but Brown said that's not true for all his colleagues. Not everyone has access to a computer, meaning they have to come to work in the middle of a pandemic or lose their jobs. I think it would be mind-blowing and mind-boggling for people to see who this is affecting, how it's affecting them, and to the longitude that it's affecting them. I'm going to go back here to my job, like I said to you. Because the state didn't provide us with devices, you were able to see immediately who were able to telework because they had the resources to, and who wasn't able to telework because they didn't have the resources to. It's unfortunate that I have to bring it up that in 2020, We had state offices with all minority staff in there because, again, these people didn't have the flexibility to go out and buy a $300 laptop just so that they can telework. I asked Jones if the problem was that we, as a society, tend to put people in boxes, to create divisions, to turn a different group of people into the other. What you just described is what happens, in my opinion, to poor white people. So you you just described class. It's one thing to put people in categories around class and caste systems, right? But what's happening here, the thing that COVID is forcing everybody to look at is how that's different for Black people. When it comes to like systemic public health, complete like alienation from the system, like that's your Black experience. And I'm not Latino, so I, don't, I can't speak for that community, but I can see like a similar negotiation going on. And it's happening in ways that aren't even like overlapped with black people, but that's your two communities. Like if you wanna see America for what it is, it's how it's treating not these people in this class system, but literally how it's dogging and like, like almost causing an evaporation of existence for like Latinx and black people, and people of descendants of African descent. This is Exit 43, 
We're going to continue looking at issues of inequity in the coming episodes, including within the justice system and with regard to public health. My name is Jordan Fenster. If you have a story you'd like to tell or just need to reach out, please send me an email, jordan.fenster at hearstmediact.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>